Hello and welcome to the IPO drop. Today we've got a great friend of Local Globe and last year joining us in David Frankel, with our focus today being on MA exits or liquidity events. And David is uniquely positioned to talk about this, having been through significant MA exits himself with his own company, Internet Solutions, which was the largest ISP and data carrier in Africa, as well as his learnings as a co-founder of hugely successful New York-based venture capital firm, Founder Collective, whose portfolio includes numerous breakout successes, including Uber, PillPack, The Trade Desk, Riskified, Cruise, Hotel Tonight, and many others. And indeed, in March this year, David had two IPOs in the same week go out with Kupang and Olo, where David remains on the board today. One fun stat about David is he was declared South African technology achiever of the century back in 2000, which tells me two things. Firstly, David has absolutely walked the founder path. And so we'll be hearing more about his journey and learnings from internet solutions. Secondly, David has experienced cycles and not just cycles, but cycles across multiple geographies, including Africa, the US, Asia, and Europe. And going into the year 12 of a bull market, that perspective is increasingly rare and probably more valuable for it, especially as we discuss past to liquidity and timing. Today, David's one of the most respected VCs in the business, close collaborator with Local Globe and Now Latitude, and we've seen firsthand David's passion for supporting founders through the journey that he himself has walked. So David, you've had a long and varied career, both as a founder, as well as an investor, and advisor to early stage tech startups. We could no doubt fill this whole session going through that history and what you've learned along the way. But today, as I say, we're taking this tack on exits or liquidity events. And we're quite specifically talking about exits and liquidity events as different things, exit being an M&A sale, a liquidity event or going public, which I don't believe, and I'm sure you don't believe either, is an exit event and founders themselves don't think of it that way. They are still running the company the next day. Perhaps just in that context, you can frame your background a little bit and your path to where you sit today, what you've seen along the way as a founder, as an investor, and maybe just some high level summary learnings about the importance of the exits in the context of company building. Well, Julian, hi. Uh, thank you so much for having me alongside you. I have no idea how I will do justice to that ridiculously kind introduction and especially coming from, you know, you and uh, just, just you know, to double down and double click on the esteem in which we hold um, Latitude and Local Globe. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, um, we all bring our, our biases and, you know, I the journey uh, even the last 10 years, I think, has biased us all towards thinking that everything goes up and to the right forever. Um, my own journey where we started IS uh, and really grinded it out like crazy at the beginning. And, you know, founders get tired at various stages of, of the journey. And certainly we were no exception. And, uh, you know, opportunities come along which are, you know, they're, they're the hugest, juiciest carrots. And sometimes they come along at what feel like opportune times for founders, but but are actually, in hindsight, inopportune. And I guess ours came along. I'm extremely grateful, and for the rest of my life, will be grateful for it. But 
you know, else came along at probably in retrospect, what was an inopportune moment in that we overcome so much inertia and we were on our way. So we, we probably sold prematurely and that has definitely influenced me. The last 10 years, you know, where every, every time an your potential acquisition of a portfolio company fell through, it tended to, not every single time, but all good, it all good well. Every time we could have done something, uh, you know, where we sought liquidity of one form or another earlier um, and, and for, you know, forewent that and carried on building the company. And clearly this, this is a comment that pertains most to good companies that have market traction, that are building their market share. Um, you know, so, so I, I have a, I, you know, I, I need to disclaim that I have a, a bit of an allergy to exits and yet, you know, ultimately exits come at the right time for founders. We as an investor have influence, no power. And, and our influence is, is as good and as logical as the statement sounded in the unique context for that founder. So we're incredibly open-minded and I guess my job, and we'll try to unpack it today together, is just to bring the experience and sometimes a contrarian view to bear when the founder is being seduced, and a lot of I, you view a lot of M and A, IPO, and 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 you know most of them can turn out very very well, but you've just got to. I think our job in many respects is to keep founders objective, uh, you know, and, and and looking at every aspect. But maybe just to to set the tone for your bias against the early exit, maybe you can just tell the story a little bit about internet solutions and and the path you went through because it wasn't just the moment itself it's what played out afterwards i suspect that gave you the sense that in retrospect that was too early yeah and hindsight's is you know hindsight is precise and i i really say you know i've heard it said anyone who says no regrets it's like what were you doing in life you know you weren't aspiring to enough so so you know, I want to say no regrets, but I guess if I could do this over again from an internet solution perspective, I wouldn't have sold when we sold. Um, you know, we started IS with perfect timing. I had uh, graduated from engineering. My co-founder, Ronnie Uptaker, I, I co-founded with Ronnie, Ronnie and Alon Uptaker, and, uh, and, and Tom was running our, um, uh, our tech side. But uh, Ronnie had started IS in, in uh, late 93. I joined at the beginning of 94. And um, our timing was impeccable. It was pre-Netscape, pre-Mosaic. And, uh, you know, that, that would happen imminently post my joining. But we were providing really, really early access to the internet for deep technological reasons. And most of those were, so we were never selling to marketers or the C-suite other than the CTO at most, but really it was people who were bringing down uh, patches uh, for, for you know, large infrastructural computing. And really a lot of that was mainframe, frankly. We, you know, we knew that if uh, at the beginning of 94, that if uh, our target customers owned a particular mainframe, they would be, they would be very easy to, to um, switch on. Uh, you know, fast forward even months and the, the, the web happens, uh, and everything explodes. So the need for hosting, security, web development, um, 
and we were able to to develop a bandwidth provider, but a lot of peripheral businesses uh, very, very quickly. So in the space of two to three years, we had a something that looks, uh, you know, a much smaller version, but like what AWS looks like, you know, we, we, were, we were representing uh, companies like Checkpoint, which was the preeminent security uh, network software provider in the world at that point. Uh, very, very close to, uh, you know, the the network's uh, um, hardware providers. And ultimately, we were acquired by the largest Cisco distributor at that point in Africa and soon to become, through via acquisition, the largest Cisco distributor in the world. So uh, it's difficult to kind of relive just how you know, we, we, we have done well, and I suspect Local Globe has done incredibly well through these various waves, uh, you know, starting with the internet and mobile and social and cloud. But the advent of the internet and this explosion of opportunity, you, you couldn't have timed it better. The core, um, the core revenue generator and the core profit generator was the uh, bandwidth ISP business. So really, we were... <clears throat> We were really a data um, becoming a telco effectively, and uh, and you know we 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 got acquisition offers coming in reasonably quick, and they got better and better. Sprint offered us a five million dollar deal. You know, I was I, I think I was twenty three. This is it's telephone numbers. You know, you're twenty three. You can't even and and I'm you know. <laughs> luckily, we said no to that. But then Dimension Data came in uh, about, you know, a year or two after we started and, and certainly gave us an offer. And, and I'll come back to this point because, because sometimes it's very difficult, particularly for humble founders. And I suspect most of your founders and listeners are, you know, they work like crazy. And it's difficult to envisage what you can become and when. You all wish for it. But when you're deep down that hole, um, you, you, you're, you're always questioning, can we be the one? Um, and, I, and I certainly felt that way. So an offer came along that our partner, you know, my partners and I contemplated and our advisors looked at it and it just looked too, too good to be true. The, the thing that we did, which was a mistake, was we gave away a, an option as well. And... We can get into a lot of discussion about this, but I think that founders learn about giving options against themselves the hard way. I think pro rata in a way is, is it's a separate discussion of its own, but pro rata is a good option for investors, not a great option for founders. But we gave an option to buy an addition. We, we, we sold 25% and we gave an offer, an option to buy another 25 plus one. And in retrospect, we didn't think that through. Anyway, 97 came along and... Again, there was an offer for the whole business, which was, you know, it was it was telephone numbers. Our, you know, I was 26 at the time. My uh, our lawyers and our and our uh, financial advisors kind of couldn't couldn't believe the numbers that were being thrown at us, and we sold. The difficulty there was we'd hit our stride. So the acquisition gave us credibility, given who the acquirer was. That credibility certainly. In, in large scale e-commerce projects. So when we were developing and 
deploying the first online banking sites. The credibility of that acquirer, I cannot negate for a moment. But in our core bandwidth business, because we had been buying in such bulk, we could afford to, to discount others in the market. And there was a kind of, it wasn't a price war, but there was a value offering, which was tough to beat. And we didn't recognize that edge. And that edge, you know, that went on to become an extremely profitable business. Certainly when Dimension Data was acquired uh, for a few billion dollars by NTT, that was a significant contributor to the global business. And it was able to, the, the, the profitability was able to fund, um, you know, ca um, significant capitalization and acquisition. So, you know, hindsight is this precise science, but that has colored me as to know when you're, you know, no, and look, the, the difficulty, and, and we can tease this out, is, is that, that tough dance between humility and, and paranoia. You know, and I think good founders are always paranoid about that competitor. And if that, you know, if they throw $100 million at this, what's going to take to compete with that? But inertia is, uh, you know, when you've overcome inertia, you've done a lot. And I think that many founders undervalue momentum. Now, there are very opportunistic times to sell. And I think that the, I think that in the current environment, and I'm going to segue a little away from internet solutions, you know, the peak of, um, the peak of hope versus the peak of reality, there's a very long valley in between. And perception and that, um, perception of that peak of hope uh, can fuel a lot. It certainly fuels a tremendous amount in terms of funding, but then you've got to catch up to that. And sometimes there are opportunities where a large acquirer views you as strategic um, or there is hype around a sector. There are opportunities for um, for either financing or M&A activity within, within that, or you're plugging a hole for a large acquirer. Uh, local Globe and Founder Collective are, are involved in the M&A activity around a portfolio company that right now it's imminent where that is exactly the case. And understanding the strategic value that you provide to the acquirer is also important. And frankly, I, I think we probably undervalued that tremendously at Internet Solutions because the hardware, uh, the, the hardware distributors were having their businesses commoditized. So routers you'd had a 50% margin in the early 90s. And, you know, fast forward even four or five years, your margins were becoming, on the hardware, were becoming razor thin. So you needed services to, to really augment your margins or to maintain any semblance of your margins. But, but there, are, there are, and I think I want to make sure that we have a very open discussion because there are unequivocally times where M&A makes tons of sense and is very opportunistic. So, as you say, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it sounds like the takeaway, rather than the specifics of that situation, is there's almost something in perhaps the process or the people you have around you to help build those insights and objectivity to, to decision making. Because when you've got a mega trend, as you had behind you, or a tailwind, 
plus the feeling that you're a winner and that perception of being a winner you know, may be valuable to get other perceptions on and make sure that you're not uh, just too close to the situation. Like, uh, how, how do you how do you try and advise founders today that they can at least set themselves up to maybe not make the right decision, like the perfect decision, it probably doesn't exist, but get as close as they can to it and surround themselves by, as I say, process and people to, to make that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the first thought that comes to mind is none of us are objective. We all bring our subjective bias to every conversation. And the first thing I try to do when counseling founders who frankly are lucky enough, and let's just you know contextualize that, lucky enough to be contemplating some of these decisions, whether that be follow on, you know, significant rounds of capital or some form of secondary or, you know, IPO, M&A, SPAC, some form of liquidity is, you know, understand the context and the source from which that advice is given and make, sh- make, make sure you ask the right questions to, to understand why you're being given the advice you're given by anyone around you. Um, certainly, even when you talk to peers and often peers who have gone through something that is one stage ahead of you can be a very, very good source of advice because they've just been through something that you're about to encounter and the pitfalls can be clarified quickly. But also, you know, make sure that you that it's a like-for-like comparison. So, you know, um, make sure that, you know, if you're given advice from a company that was very, very strong, uh, you know, and had, let's say, you know, very strong kind of SaaS metrics and was a sweetheart IPO, make sure that you're not uh, incorrectly comparing yourself to them if your metrics look much worse because you may have a tougher journey. But so, 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 you know, it's dissect every word that I'm giving here. When I say peers, I, I would say try to seek out like, like really peers, right? Who have companies that are quite similar. Uh, generally, they'll be in different verticals. Uh, and then, you know, this sounds trite and cliched and self-serving, but uh, surround yourself with people who've had experience of these events. And, you know, so, so you know, having a board member or that has not been through um, a few IPOs pontificating about IPOs is not that helpful. Uh, you know, have, have and really, really plug into that experience. But, but the best founders uh, have, you know, ultimately synthesize multiple opinions, but have a view of their own. And, uh, and just, and, and, and nobody is, you know, my partner, Eric Paley, uh, we, we were having a discussion about a, 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 a liquidity event. And I was saying, let's talk to XYZ hedge fund management. And, and I, you know, I'm having a deja vu as I say this, Eric turned around, looked me in the eye and said, you know, there are no adults. And basically what he was saying was, you know, we're alone, we, the air's thin here, we've got to make a decision. And he's right. And ultimately, that's the joy and curse of being the CEO is you've got to take this all in, synthesize it carefully, and then make a decision. And that and and I use the word again, seductive, because I'm going, you know, I've been through some IPOs, I'm, I'm in multiple SPAC processes right now. And there is plenty available to seduce CEOs. I'd love to come on to SPACs later because I think they, they play such an interesting uh, 
interesting role here, given the types of company that they seem to be able to shepherd onto the public markets. But but before we do that, um, you've discussed your experience of, of what in retrospect you feel might have been too early. You can also be too late. And have you had experiences like that? And what would be your your learning from those situations? And if you can extract yeah, anything from I mean, them. I mean, no, no question I have. And I've been at this for a while. It's, you know, there's there's been a very varied portfolio. And, um, you know, I, I, I prefer to think of the companies that missed opportunities but ended up doing just fine. Uh, but I think, I think, some of that has to do, and again, it's it's so easy in the rearview mirror, but recognizing when there's zeitgeist around you and and questioning whether that zeitgeist can or should last. So uh, I think, by the way, you're seeing this in the crypto world on a weekly basis, just given the volatility. Uh, but certainly we've seen this in, in the fintech space where in some ways, it comes back to my talking about strategic fit with the acquirer and a moment where, you know, there was very good strategic fit and recognizing that that moment can pass and usually does because that acquirer or other acquirers will find other opportunities to plug the hole that you as the target acquisition could have or would have plugged. So, you know, one company that certainly comes to mind for me is TrialPay uh, and Alex Rampel, who is a uh, partner at A16Z, and Terry Angelos, who runs Global Fintech for Visa, now were the co-founders of TrialPay. Extraordinarily smart, hardworking, built a terrific business. Uh, at some point, PayPal wanted to acquire them. And I think that they may have been given uh, you know, the right advice, but at, at the moment, but in retrospect, the wrong advice, um, because there was, there was, there was a good offer available. And I think that, uh, the bank, you know, bankers suggested that they could do better. And at some point what they were asking for was less tenable and, you know, they stuck it out for another two or three years and then credit to that team visa acquired the business in a way that was, excellent for founders and for um, all stakeholders. But but I think they missed a moment. And, and I have, Julian, absolutely experienced many of those, including those who are not lucky enough to, I use trial pay as the example because it did end up, you know, it still ended up well. Others, it didn't end up well. You know, the, the, the counter, by the way, is tenacity. So, so and, and you know, it's almost like you won if you were right and and uh, you didn't know if you were right until you kind of won and you've never really won. But, uh, but you know, Olo had two very, very serious acquisition offers, uh, also one from PayPal, which fell through. And that, you know, generally, you know, worked out reasonably well for, for the founder and stakeholders. So finding that right window is a, a very interesting point because I think it's worth reaffirming that 
um, an MA exit is you're not checking out. It's not an admission of defeat or you can't take it any further. It's great MA from both sides is finding the right home, a home which satisfying for the management team, for the team that's being integrated. It allows the business to thrive. It can be an incredibly positive experience if it's done well. And given the great truism, which I'm a huge believer in, that good companies are bought, not sold, what's your experience of how that's worked out well? Maybe companies like PillPack, that process of leading up to a really successful acquisition, which means you know at that point it's going to be a positive thing that it should be in its best form. Right. I think PillPack, and uh, I'm glad you asked the question. I think PillPack is is an example of a company that sold at a good time. Uh, You know, PillPack was, it was a company that was growing very quickly and a very, very sophisticated e-commerce because getting e-com, there are so many moving parts to e-commerce. You really are. Uh, you, you're back in the business of stock and logistics and, uh, you know, there, there's so much that can go wrong in terms of customer satisfaction and call centers. It's a really, really um, complicated business. And, you know, you throw in drugs and as a as a board director of PillPack, I never took my, I, there's no company where I've taken my DNO insurance as seriously because, uh, you know, you ship the wrong stuff to the wrong customer and you literally can kill people. So, uh, you know, sh- a pharmacy, an online pharmacy shipping out drugs, you've got to get it right. And I think that what Pulpac went through was through raising capital, they bought, they, TJ and Elliot, the founders, really bought good bench strength. Uh, and so there, there were times where Pulpac felt like you were, building the spacecraft while you were flying it. And then there were moments where it felt like the, the, the seas were calm because you had stuff under control. But because TJ was such a, you know, an aggressive found in, in the best possible sense, you know, just at that moment, he'd put the throttle down again and it was like, go, go, go. So so there, there came a point where Pillpack was going to need to, given that it had, it had gone national. It had multiple distribution centers. Uh, it was going to need a lot of capital to grow it, or it was going to need a partner that could really, really take care of the distribution and really needed needed the company. The interesting thing for Pillpack was, and and TJ was very good at understanding this. Um, it's easy in retrospect to go. Amazon was a was a unique and great fit. But, you know, many of the largest drug companies are looking at the supply chain in, in, in pharma and are looking at the kind of DTC world uh, of which Pillpack certainly was an, an, you know, an accelerator in the area and were thinking, well, how do I supply my drugs direct to the consumer? So what arose was a situation where large pharma players actually became very interested in buying Pillpack. Um, and it's not that well known publicly, but you know, companies like Novartis were very serious bidders. Uh, ultimately, um, Pillpack's acquisition by Amazon let them do exactly what you said. It actually let them continue 
kind of having a shot at this dream where they could run pull pack um, rather autonomously to start off with within Amazon, but get huge augmentation from Amazon uh, through through the stuff that Amazon was uniquely good at. What Amazon got was this uh, was this quick shoe in into a world that they had fiddled around in without much success. And what they understood was so much of the spaghetti code between insurers, providers, patients uh, had actually been figured out by Pillpack. That was Pillpack's overwhelming value to them. And that was hard, like really, really hard. The, the, clearly the logistics side is, you know, is, uh, is a doddle for um, Amazon, but actually making sure that at scale, you're putting the right drugs into, in, you know, the right capsules uh, into the right packages is not simple. So that was a fantastic acquisition, which let the founders kind of, you know, put huge firepower under their dream, as opposed to maybe selling it to a, you know, to one pharma company, which would have served that pharma company very well, but probably would have put paid to this vision of DTC pharmacy. You're you're not going to, you're never going to stand in line or walk through rows of, you know, uh, I don't know, sugar water to to stand in line for the for a pharmacy which is by design they actually want you to wait for the pharmacy a bit um because, uh, because you'll buy all the other rubbish so 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 that was the dream and and amazon was the perfect partner to let them realize that dream and it was a and you know there was a time where it was at a moment where you could have raised capital at a similar price perhaps um but then you had to you really had to double down. Now, there's always going to be, be a degree of speculation. What if we done it that way? And clearly, there are companies in our portfolio that resisted those acquisitions, raised you know significant amounts of capital, and just kept going. How prepared do you like founders to be for the strategic land on the strategic landscape around them, in terms of who potential acquirers are? having some level of relationship with them, the potential acquirers having some awareness of their business and what they're building, given that these things don't happen overnight? Yeah, so, you know, there's a phase of your business where you need to, certainly as the founder or the CEO, you need to um, come up for air, but then be very blinkered around executing on a project. And I remember you know, doing this at IS is there'd be lots of peripheral concerns and worries. And at some point, strategy was saying, okay, we're not going to listen to that. Uh, you know, we're going to shut that out and we're going to execute. And in the early days of a business, uh, you know, if, if you're just up and listening to the news and the noise too much, you're going to get into trouble in my view. You have to put your head down and execute. Uh, as as your business starts to mature, hopefully you're augmenting yourself operationally and in you know certainly in sales, marketing, engineering, distribution, product, and you have a little more time to kind of come up for air and be more strategic. And probably at that point, you should really be understanding the lay of the land in terms of your competitors, your acquirers. I think you know we we certainly suggest to founders that if they 
if we're starting to think of an acquisition in two to three years time, even that, you know, having lunch once or twice a year with the right person in that potential acquirer, having them aware of you uh, is important. And credit to TJ and frankly, most founders I know who, who, um, you know, do the M&A thing well is they have a bunch of people around them who have a prepared mind. And, you know, more than that may feel that they're going to lose out. They've known XYZ founder for a long, for two, three years, they've watched that story unfold and they're about to lose it. You know, having that prepared mind is a tremendous uh, accelerant, I think, to to good M&A. So the crisp answer is, I do think you should be making those around you aware of you. I, I, you know, I, I'm influenced a little bit by the Netflix series Drive to Survive, which is the Formula One series, uh, which is quite well done. And, you know, you've got these team managers and these drivers and they're 20 drivers and they're, and they're contracted and they're always kind of mulling, you know, which, which team the next driver is going to move to. And you've got to be very circumspect and quiet about it. And then there comes a moment where you've actually got to do it and reveal, you know, or, or certainly reveal quite a lot. And I think that becomes the tricky, interesting moment because, uh, you know, m- most CEOs are loath to give up, to, to open the kimono and give up the secret source. And actually at that point, my advice generally is, look, it's very hard to rebuild what you've built here. You could probably... And clearly, you know, you get you get to an NDA phase, but you can probably tell them more than you think you can, particularly if it's good. I think that's fantastic advice on on both parts. Firstly, the the awareness of the the, the chessboard around you. It, it was slightly circumstantial, but there were certainly a lot of founders uh, or a number of founders that that we would speak to in the early part of 2020 when the world was looking very insecure. Oh, insecure, and the they felt exposed, not knowing the world around them. If they needed to find a home, and they came out of that a bit an extreme situation, going, "I do not want to be in this situation again." It's beholden to me to figure yeah. it out. And then the second point around, you know, having being judicious but not paranoid about sharing information, so people do understand you, is something which which probably comes with conversations over time as you build rapport and so on but it's a it's definitely uh it's definitely unintuitive i think for a lot of founders initially as they start to explore the world around them perhaps we can just julian by the way i think you allude to something which will play out still and i think that that q you know that kind of q2 of 2020 was actually a more formative period than we may give credit to right now and I'm alluding to the fact that I think good companies that need to, needed to take capital at that moment, there were, there were companies that had shored up and good for them, but there were also good companies that took capital, didn't take that capital as, um, didn't, did, did not optimize those rounds. And I think some of those founders have come out of that and, um, you know, are thinking to themselves, never again, right? I'm either going to, shore up and maybe some of those those founders are actually more open to SPACs and to ways in which they shore up their companies. Um, and it's not, it's not selfish, it's very much for all their stakeholders. Uh, and, and, and maybe that leads a little bit into 
um, you know, at some point, the SPAC conversation, why some companies may be more susceptible to that sell than others? Well, let, let's do it now. It's a phenomenon which I think has actually changed the perception of what public ready looks like from a business perspective. It's been a pretty attractive path for companies which may have substantial tech risks still. It feels to me more like the 1990s or early 2000s, where public markets and investors were comfortable embracing those sorts of risks. The mechanism um, isn't actually all that novel. It's, uh, it's just very, very fashionable now. It's hard to generalize um, about, about the companies going in and, and what their tra- trajectories will be. Some things are definite. The one thing is for the SPAC arrangers, this is a lucrative project. And, uh, you know, it's almost like regardless of what happens, suddenly they own five or 6% and it varies of your company. If you look at some of the, um, you know, many of the SPAC promoters, they are ex-investment bankers. Uh, they, they, you know, have uh, tremendous finance literacy. And, uh, you know, the, certainly this pertains to the very best SPAC advisors is, you know, where a Goldman was making maybe 50 million or 100 million after the green shoe, they can come out of, depending on the size of the SPAC, you know, making 2x that. So, so you've got some of the, you know, you've got some ex- outstanding promoters. They, they know how to talk to management teams. They know how to seduce management teams. Uh, regardless of kind of how well you do, they do well. Uh, so so this, is, this is what I was alluding to in terms of helping founders and CEOs stay objective. I think that the first thing is, if you are a high potential spec target, the, you know, it's well done because we're in, we're again, we're in thin air here. Like it's, 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 it it makes those founders and those companies feel very good. The clear opportunity of a spec is that you can make forward looking statements, which you cannot do in an IPO Uh, for very, very strong companies. And generally that means certainly break even or preferably profitable uh, and for highly profitable companies. And you've seen a few of these it's a very quick IPO process. So it's faster and easier than an IPO process, particularly if you have no interest in additional capital. Those companies exist, but they are really few and far between. You've seen a few of those in the kind of sports betting and gaming space uh, take place. Those have become uh, some of the poster children for SPACs. Those companies were resilient, well-funded, and then, you know, my fear is, so my fear is multidimensional, uh, is comes down to the um, exec team and the company itself. On the exec team side, you know, you really have to, certainly the founder and the CFO, the CEO and the CFO, first and foremost, and then uh, to a lesser degree, other members of the management team um, have to kind of try to envisage whether they want to be a um, public company with everything that goes with that. So so I'll use someone like Noah Glass at Olo. Uh, Noah, 10 years ago, you, you would have, anyone around Noah would have said he'll make a, you know, he'll, he'll enjoy doing the things that public company CEOs uh, are expected to do. So, um, you know, most founders enjoy evangelizing 
uh, evangelizing their companies, some to more, you know, higher degrees than others. Um, but if, if there is a founder who loves the limelight, who, you know, who, you know, Noah was 23 or 22 and he was on Good Morning America and then he just rode that and got much more, you know, I would say we got much more PR at Olo than we ever deserved. And it was a, it was a, a compliment, you know, to, to who Noah was versus a CEO who could be more of an introvert, more technical, um, less, you know, uh, I, I have this view that everybody defaults to doing what they enjoy most. So I think it's a kind of know thyself statement for founders is, is that what you're going to enjoy doing? Because if you're not going to enjoy doing it, uh, you know, we may have a problem. Um, the the other thing is just the state of the business. So so I think that the the value of the forward-looking statement is you can get out, but but you are no less subject to the volatility of the public markets, particularly you know with quarterly reporting, quarterly results than anyone else. And I think that you've got to be up for a wild ride. I think not looking beyond you know what is presented by the by the SPAC promoters and represented as how you will do. And there's there's a double dance here because the SPAC promoters promote to management that this is going to be unbelievable. And the you know the eventually management have um, have a vested interest in promoting themselves to the promoters. So you know you can open yourself up to tremendous volatility. What's you know so 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 what's the punchline? The punchline is um, if you're not if you don't think you're IPO ready, uh, if you really don't think you're IPO ready, you're probably not SPAC ready. Um, and you know you're you're you you you're just going to feel that pain down the line. I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of financial engineering going on here. My worry is, you know, will the underlying targets withstand it? But I think a good I think a good barometer and a good handbrake is the pipe market, which has certainly looked mm. uh, significantly more austere in the last month or so. So if, if there's going to be a good thing that comes out of this, it's going to be that balance, presumably, between supply and demand, where it does feel like it's got out of whack. And as you say, the, the pipe market is keeping those SPACs honest because it's a critical part of the transaction. Without it, it doesn't happen. I, I, I sound like a thundercloud here. And I, I just want to say there is another side of this where there are companies that are going to spec that are very, very accretive right now. And there's almost a, a, you know, an opportunity for investors who are really paying attention and are really looking at the underlying uh, targets to, to do very, very well because, you know, um, because it's it's there's such a sea of capital that it's hard to kind of pick out the needle from the haystack. But there will be absolute diamonds, and then there are companies that can um, that can make forward-looking statements, and maybe the 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 verticals that they operate in, particularly post-COVID, will do better, right? Because there's only one way to go post-COVID for for certain industries that are hospitality. Uh, you know, maybe airline, um, hotels, uh, and, and you know, there is a chance that investors there could do well too. So I don't want to sound like this is all doom and gloom. Um, I have a personal view that, that you know, there, that, that 
people will come unstuck, but but there's no question there 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 is going to be a broad spectrum here. Yeah, that's right. It's one of the things which I'm uh, in over a long enough period optimistic about that if it means that companies which internally are ready, but hold more inherent risk in them still, um, but benefit from the access to capital of being public enables you, that is not necessarily a bad thing. Essentially, you're transitioning yeah. returns from the private market where you know, they've been hoarded, frankly, for a long period of time, back to public markets. I can't remember a, uh, a portfolio company in my career where ultimately we didn't end up doing what the founder wanted to do, right? So, and the only, I said this earlier, but we have influence, not power. Um, the only thing that we seek to do is to try and um, make sure or help that founder make sure that it's absolutely eyes wide open. And, and you know, sometimes on these, in these spec, spec situations is the investors have been at it for a long time. They want to get out. And it's, a, it's another opportunity to kind of perhaps realize some liquidity. Tough for the founder to resist that. But if the founder has a strong enough story, um, you know, I would then suggest that those founders kind of go and have lunch with another founder that did stick it out, that did resist this. Uh, but but understand all sides and make sure, you know, the one thing is you start the SPAC process or you start an IPO process for that matter. Having witnessed this a few times, it's very difficult, almost impossible to pull out. So when I hear that, oh, we're signing a, you know, non-binding term sheet or, you know, we're, we're dipping our toe and figuring this out and, you know, we're talking to Goldman or JP Morgan, the back of my head is we're done. Like we're going down this path. What do you think founder secondaries or team secondaries have to play in that creating alignment between founders and investors? Yeah, I'm so glad you you asked that. Um, I think it's a critically important release valve. I think that, um, you know, we, we talk and seed stage funds talk about founder alignment uh, and, and wanting to stay economically aligned with the founder. The only way to ensure the continuity of that proposition is through secondary. I am a, I am a huge advocate of secondary uh, and it's, it's not even stage-based. If I look at, uh, you know, it used to be take secondary at series C, series B, because, but if you look at the size of some of these series A rounds, we had a series A which scale venture partners led, it was 25 on 125 million pre. Um, the founders didn't take secondary, but they probably should have, because I think that if each of the co-founders had taken a million dollars of secondary, my partner always says the first million dollars is the most life-changing, and I agree with him. Um, that I, I think that would have provided, provided even more alignment to go for it. So, so you know, as a venture capitalist, it is uh, you have to disclaim that we are, by virtue of a portfolio, we are more diversified than any single founder. And therefore, our ability to go long, uh, to let this play out, to be more patient, is ahead of that founder. We don't have to be as certainly fiscally paranoid uh, uh, per situation as the founder should be. But, but I think that secondary alignment, let's, uh, taking secondary, let's founders um, take more risk, frankly. And, and go longer. 
to the point of holding out and, and staying private for longer, perhaps one of the greatest case studies of that is in the founder collective portfolio in Uber. What do you think holding out did for that business, the business it became, and also the, the business it is today? Uber being in the founder collective portfolio, I, I always have to give credit to my partner, my extraordinary partner, Eric Paley, um, you know, for being at, the, for, for recognizing that he was at the right place at the right time. And in some ways, you know, Uber gets thrown in our face because we are huge believers in capital efficiency. And it's kind of like, well, you know, here's a company that wrote, that raised billions of dollars and, uh, you know, Coupon's another example, frankly, from the same $100 billion fund, you know, that raised, that these companies collectively raised billions of dollars from SoftBank. Um, the, the great thing about the Uber case study is it epitomized land grab. So, so if you looked at the economics of the very first markets, if you looked a year or two years into what was going on in, in San Francisco and how this could play it out, um, Travis... Uh, did an amazing job of um, selling, uh, of telling the story to to sources of capital that this was, you know, this was going to be copied. You needed to go as broad and global as fast as you could and just replicate what was going on in San Francisco. And then later in London, um, you know, I, I, I know well, I know the first employee in Africa, guy, Alon Litz, he was in the first 200. He was in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. He was given the playbook and literally he went, you know, they played this out city by city, country by country. And to to watch how how that same playbook was just literally being replicated was quite extraordinary. Uh, you know, have, having a front row seat to that was was quite something. So I think that, you know, you really had a kind of proverbial throw gas on the bonfire. And if we don't, many other fires will be lit and they won't be ours. Uh, um, so so the by staying private, they were able to execute that. And I think there is, there is a lesson for a very lucky few founders in that. And that is, if you find accretive product market fit and you are able to replicate that in other geographies or other verticals so it doesn't have to be just geographies um, and you're able to tell a story where you can raise capital and not have the um, you know the diversions of uh, of being public uh, and you know you are you are in you know rare rare company. We've covered a large amount of ground. The insights you've shared, based on very real learnings at the coalface, both as a founder and as a trusted advisor sitting next to founders, it's invaluable. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, Julian, thank. You. It was such fun to do it. So thank you so much for doing it and for having me along. Thank you, David. Very grateful. Have a good evening. Take care. You too. Bye.